Well, good morning. It's great to be with you folks. Uh, this is actually my second visit to your church. The first one was virtually online in about um, late March or early April uh, when we were all kind of pinned down where we were at. And uh, uh, I said to Linda, I said, I, I heard that Pastor Rich is uh, uh, speaking at a church in Wisconsin these days. I, we said, tune in. And uh, Linda was my wife, just making sure you knew that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is going out online, I suppose, and you know, I want to be on record, just who that was. Anyway, uh, she's, uh, she's uh, off at our church in uh, at West Lafayette, Indiana this morning, and so she won't be seeing this until later, I suppose. But uh, uh, it, was, it was good to be able to catch what God was doing in their lives, and then lo and behold, it wasn't too much longer after that that you cemented that relationship with Pastor Rich and his wife Valerie, and, and uh, I'm rejoicing for what God is doing in your church, and especially Especially in light of times that we are faced with these days, churches are, generally speaking, not doing quite that well. And uh, my ministry is with Midwest Church Extension. That is a ministry where we are involved in planting churches, also revitalizing churches. But one of the other ministries that we provide is that of spiritual uh, church health assessment ministry, where we actually go into a church to, to do diagnostics to see where they're where they're at, what are some of the issues that they face, what are the things that they could correct, where are they needing encouragement and strengthening because of they're doing well in these areas, and uh, that is actually a ministry that's being called upon in our lives right now more and more, especially in light of the times that we're facing. Uh, even before the days of the virus, church's health was in uh, uh, varying states of, of disrepair in some places, others were struggling, and uh, we all have different levels of, of uh, success in ministry and so forth as we go through this life, and we have that journey where we have our ups and downs. Uh, but it just seems as a general trend that churches have been struggling more and more in the last number of years. And so that particular aspect of our ministry has been called upon uh, quite a bit. So uh, it, it basically was in that vein as I was representing Midwest Church Extension uh, at a pastors and church fellowship that I was able to meet Pastor Rich and his wife Valerie to uh, learn about their work. And when he introduced himself uh, representing a group called a ministry called Prophecy Focus, it perked my ears up instantly because that was basically when I uh, came uh, to the Lord in 1980 as a high school student, I was able to, uh, the first doctrines, the first uh, topics of interest were, were Bible prophetic uh, uh, truths. And, and so that's always been kind of a special thing to me. And so I, here I was listening to a guy that uh, took Bible prophecy seriously, that was careful with the scriptures about what the prophetic word was saying, and uh, was actually had a whole ministry built around that. And I immediately went to him at the first break to introduce myself and to get connected with him. And that was the beginning of our friendship. Uh, we have had him at our church in Indiana numerous times, uh, at least three or four times, if I'm not mistaken, a prophecy conference year after year to help us to uh, have those truths reinforced in our people's ministries. We were so glad because uh, I have discovered over time that uh, it seems that we're in one of those periods of time where prophecy is being downplayed more and more from a doctrinal perspective. And as your pastor, no doubt, has shared with you, when you've got over 25% of the scriptures that's prophetic, you can't 
downplay Bible prophecy. And that reality was, was a compelling reality to me even before I knew Pastor Rich and just seeing churches forgetting these things to see him come along in my life. And I was very eager to get him introduced to others that they might be able to extend that ministry that they have. And now that he's based here with you folks and seeing his continuation in those things and even having the privilege of the conference this weekend, or this coming week rather, that they'll be able to enjoy down in Dallas, I'm grateful that I can stand in for him today. And thank you for your hospitality in that regard as well. Well, that was a greeting, introduction, um, commercial, uh, <laughs> all kind of wrapped into one. Uh, <laughs> my purpose today is to bring the word, and so that's what I want us to do. And I'm thrilled to be able to come at this time of season of the year because of the uh, obviousness of, of our leading into our time to celebrate the advent of the Lord, and we're very grateful to do that, and that's going to be my theme this morning. This is the time of year which it's long been the practice of Christendom to, to commemorate, to remember the birth of Jesus Christ. And all down through the centuries, churches all over the world, they, they've got it built into their systems, these, these seasonable, seasonal observances about the coming of Christ. And, and there are some, of course, that have a liturgical flavor in this time of the year. It's even got a, a, a fancy name. It's Advent season. It comes from the Latin for the, meaning the word coming. But most of us aren't in that vein, of that type of Christianity. We're, we just have it in our practice. We distance ourselves from very strict formalism and liturgy and all that. And yet, with only just a little exception, we still all embrace this cultural pause in life that accompanies this time of year and we do it with a wide range of celebration you've got a program next week you've got these celebrations these observances we've got cantatas and there's dinners there's fellowship times there's parties and then when we're all done at church you know what we go back to our houses and we avail ourselves of our families to gather and to have vacations and we get together for food and all that stuff is there it's it's a great time of year um, all kinds of traditions, of course, some of them religious, some of them non-religious. I happen to like them all. And yet, the, the, the stuff of the season has become so voluminous. The, the, the tendency is to allow the cultural human joys of the season to become their own focus, and we get distracted by default. Those things supplant the true, you know the cliche, reason for the season. I mean, the one that is the ultimate joy to the world, because, and the reason for that is that the Lord has come. And so we celebrate this season as believers, and as we do, today I want to begin that season with you, and, and, and let's sensitize ourselves anew to remember what this season is all about. Because when we grasp the genuine significance of Christ's coming, it should prompt a very specific response from within us. The scriptures actually speak about this response, and it uses specific words when we, the words themselves are translated like this, amaze, wonder, marvel. And these are words of response. These are things that are to be triggered from within us. And it's the term marvel that captures my attention today because it happens to be one of those words that 
For a lot of people, uh, it, it's lost its energy in our use. It's lost its, its juice. It's lost the punch that it has. Uh, we American English speakers have defused much of our language. And the word marvel or marvelous happens to be one of those victims. Uh, we often use the word marvelous comedically. You know, when we're in a play where we're, we're overacting or we're trying to portray someone who's fashion conscious, this hoity-toity observer of someone's appearance, oh darling, I just love your ensemble. You look marvelous, right? I mean, isn't that how we do it? I mean, we, we don't even pronounce the R's. It's darling and it's marvelous. I did that way too well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, this is the one that's usually me. Uh, we use it sarcastically. You know, it's almost like we've all had one of those moments where you're just tooling along in life and everything's fine and something major disappointing comes along and what is our sarcastic response? Well, isn't that just marvelous? That's Henry Vosburgh. I can tell you that. Oh, we frame it as a question, don't we? Oh, yeah, isn't that just marvelous? But we don't mean it as a question. We've already made our assessment and it ain't marvelous, that's for sure. Well, and I'm not crusading to change our word usage here. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying that, that when something really deserves to be described as a genuine marvel that is a sincere wonder, we have to pause. We have to clear the mental slate because only then will we contemplate that thing's significance and see it as truly amazing. The incarnation is the reality that God, who himself is spirit in his natural constitution, who has always made his dwelling in heaven, that God left his glorious state and entered this world formed in flesh as a human being. And that reality merits to be ranked as a marvel. And that's what I want to speak to us about this morning. Uh, the title of my message this morning is The Marvel of the Incarnation. And that the incarnation is shown in Scripture to be a truly marvelous thing, I want to demonstrate to you with three main points. So let's look at these things together. We're going to go to various passages, so if you're in the habit of writing references down, I encourage you to do that. But it's three main points that I want you to catch out of this, uh, this survey of, of the doctrine of the advent of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the first of those points, let's look at them together, uh, look at it together. The first of these points is going to take us to verses that deal with the advent of Christ within the scope of history itself as an actual event. So see with me, item number one, the incarnation is a marvelous event. The incarnation is a marvelous event. It was the eminent theologian, Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who said this, quote, no human mind can ever grasp the significance of the occurrence and consequence of the incarnation that a person of the Godhead should become one of the human family, the sphere of his own creation, with a view to remaining in that form, though glorified and throughout eternity, must continue, and he called it this, an insoluble mystery, 
to the creatures of the world, end quote. That's a fantastic observation. It, it, it accents the marvel induced when the incarnation is truly contemplated, when you think that God became flesh and that this person of God would stay flesh throughout all the rest of eternity. That is an insoluble mystery, he says. It's a marvelous thing. The incarnation, God taking on human form, it was a once-in-all-history event. It has no parallel before it or after it. It was something to be marveled before it happened. It was marveled about when it happened. And it is something that has inspired marvel since it happened. So let's talk about those three perspectives in time. Let's talk about, first of all, with the marvel that took place before it happened. If you're in the, uh, able to turn to the scriptures, find Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, if you even need to turn there. It's a very familiar prophetic verse. Before it happened, it was a marvelous event. Seven whole centuries, in fact, before the birth of Jesus Christ, there was this clear prophecy about the incarnation that Isaiah set forth. This prophet who declared to Israel this vast body of truth about the majesty and the matchlessness of God. He spoke these familiar words. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, one might ask, you know, what's so marvelous about that? We've heard these words many times before. Well, this is where I would say, let's hear them again for the first time. Let's re-listen to them with a first-time mentality. A virgin, a woman who has never given herself to a man, will still conceive and then give birth to a son who will have this appellative assigned to him, Emmanuel a word which translates from the Hebrew, God with us. God himself is present among us. He's dwelling with men as a man. That doesn't happen. That's not how the, how the human population is added to. It doesn't work that way. Virgins don't conceive and have babies. Isaiah, you must be crazy. No, no, he's not crazy because he has just established the marvelous nature of the incarnation when he started to speak this verse. Notice it says, he, as he declares in advance of the prophecy, that what he's about to state would be a God-invoked sign. Now that word sign, it's a very simple word. It, it, it's, it's, it means an indicator, a mark, a token of something of note, and that is uh, uh, in itself not marvelous. That's just the definition of the word, but it's what the sign points to that gives this sign status as a marvel. Since virgins never conceive and have babies, because that's just not how it works, that breaks the definition of what that word even means. When it does happen, take it to the bank that something marvelous has just occurred. Since the dawn of creation, God never took a place among the creatures that he made, never became one of those creatures and then existed that way. That would be like the potter becoming one of his pots, the painter becoming one of his portraits. That's not how it works. That's absurd in any context. So know this, that in the one time of history that a virgin does conceive and bear a son, that child that is thusly born will be God in the flesh. 
This divinely marvelous caliber of that event makes it something truly amazing. Isaiah teaches that it will be a marvel when it happens. Move forward in time to Luke 2. Same, some of the references that we've seen even in our singing today to the time when this marvelous event occurred. That was before it happened. Now let's talk about when it happened. Luke chapter 2. Familiar words once again are given to us by Luke the physician. He's the one that provides us with the account of what happened that night at Bethlehem. Mary had not yet, she had not, not yet having known a man, she was even so found with child, and she was close to her time for delivering the son that she would bear. And yet, because of the swell of people that were present for this mandated census, the only shelter to be had was that of a stable. And there it was that she brought forth her son, and he was named Jesus. He was named Yeshua, the Lord saves. And therefore, the incarnation that was foretold by Isaiah 700 years prior was now being fulfilled. Well, surely, Joseph and Mary, the, the two parents, would, would marvel over the baby, just knowing that they'd already been told by Gabriel about who this person was. But it's interesting, because out on the Judean countryside, there were several men who would also marvel that night. Because those were the shepherds that were tending their flocks when suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared. It's, he emanated this brilliance of God's glory and he struck fear in their hearts. And the angel spoke, he said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Interesting statement there, because someone is being born, a man, a man, a, a human being is coming into the world, and yet that person is Christ the Lord God. Born, a man, but the person of God, the incarnation. This was followed by the angelic multitude voicing loud praises to God. The angels then returned to heaven, and it was then that the shepherds determined that they would go and see this Interesting, it says in the text, let's go see this thing. That's interesting. That's an interesting thing to call it. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to call this a thing. That sounds like one of the greatest understatements of the Bible. Okay? Uh, well, the shepherds weren't being nonchalant. They were actually observing things. It actually has a great significance. Uh, they were observing the whole announcement of the angels as a major event. When we say, oh, you know, don't make a thing out of this, you're actually saying that the thing is something of substance. It's something to be, it's an issue. It's, a, it's, it's, it's more than just a, a passing event. You know, if you turn it into a thing, you're turning it into something. It's a, it, it has a context of being elevated, something stand out. And when the shepherds said, let's go see this thing, that's exactly what they were saying. Uh, why else would they have bothered to leave their flocks and go see what had happened if it wasn't a major thing? Okay, so that's what they were doing. So they arrived, and they took in the weight of the scene, having personally put their eyes on the God incarnate, the promised Savior. And Luke says, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they had made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherd. That word wondered, if you look at it, is most often translated in our Bibles as marveled. And all those that heard it marveled at what the shepherds said. Those who did not see this thing in person 
were still amazed at the witness of the shepherds. Something marvelous had happened at Bethlehem. What was it? It was the incarnation. The incarnation. And now let's change the perspective to the future. The marvel has never yet been diminished among the minds and hearts of those, including us, who believe that truth. We too still marvel at the incarnation. We looked at before it happened, we look at when it happened. How about since it's happened? Since it happened. Looking back on the life of Jesus Christ for explanation and significance is one of the main functions that we have of all the New Testament epistles and the writings that we have there. Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude. They contribute this unfathomable wealth of doctrine in these letters that were written in the first century. It's preserved now for all of us as all generations to, 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 uh, that are believers that have followed after. Paul is the one that I'm going to focus on. He typically does this with all the doctrines he addressed. He's the one who offers those profound observations, those deep truths, helping us to marvel even more in pondering the incarnation. Consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul said, who, being Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Do you hear the incarnation there? He was made in the likeness of men. Jesus wasn't born to royal fanfare in a grand palace. Um, there was no marvelous, wonderful presentation of a Lion King Simba moment. Behold, the prince of the land. No, nothing like that. No, this, Jesus was of no reputation. He came in the form of a lowly slave in the likeness of men. And yet Paul in Colossians would then say, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. In him should all fullness dwell. Again, next chapter, Paul said, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Bodily. God is embodied. How is it that the person who is infinite, who is almighty, all-knowing, all-present, how could he be contained in this singular, physically restricted form of one human being known as Jesus of Nazareth? Schaefer again would state that God by his own design is localized in the incarnation. That's an interesting thought. He's localized, he's embodied there. How? How is that possible? If we have an understanding of who God is, how can he be localized? How can he be everywhere? How can he be omnipresent and yet localized? That doesn't happen. We can't explain these things, dear friends. Why? It is a marvel. Nevertheless, it is the truth. Amen? It's what it is. These words come from John, recorded near the end of the first century. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now, today, we Christians, 2,000 years later, we are those who have placed faith in this Savior who is God made flesh and we still contemplate with wonder at the marvel of this event called the incarnation. It is indeed 
a marvelous event. Let's take, on our, take in our second point next. Let's dem- see something else to demonstrate the marvel of the incarnation. This time we're going to go to the Gospels where we discover item number two. It's this. The incarnation is supported by marvelous evidence. The incarnation is supported by marvelous evidence. You know, making the assertion that a thing or a person is marvelous, it's a, it's a matter that just begs the vital question of how so? If I say something is marvelous, you're going to ask me, oh, really, how? How do, how do you mean that? Um, my assertion that Linda Vosberg, my wife, is a marvelous woman, it begs the question, how so? It puts the burden of proof on me to support my assertion. And that, in, indeed, is a marvelous thing. She has actually stayed married to Henry for 36 years in counting. And if you knew me, you'd know how marvelous that is. <laughs> that, indeed, is a marvelous thing. Oh, yeah. Well, I do know him, and oh, yeah, that's a marvel. <laughs> I don't understand that, but it, it happened. And the scriptures do more than just assert the marvel that Jesus is God incarnate. Because it almost anticipates the begged question, how so? How is Jesus so marvelous? How is that incarnation so amazing? The scriptures record a wealth of testimony as marvelous evidence that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed God in the flesh. Showing through things that he did and through the things that he said. They were marvels that no mere man could have done and said. So let's talk about that. Let's have evidence to the marvelous incarnation is first seen in the marvelous works of Jesus. Some references from the Gospels. The first one would be Matthew chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. In the midst of a terrible storm, Jesus, quote, arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. What was their reaction to his mighty work? They marveled. They marveled. Same gospel, next chapter, verse 8, Matthew 9, 8. A paralyzed man, after being healed by Jesus, took up his bed and walked home. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled. And they glorified God, as, which had given such power unto men. Same chapter, verse 33. A man, unable to speak because of possession, was also healed by Jesus. Quote, and when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never so seen in Israel. Marvelous. Matthew chapter 15, verse 31, ministering in the midst of whole crowds of people hampered by so many afflictions, the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. As Jesus was healing every affliction, dealing with every malady, the multitude wondered. They marveled at this. Luke chapter 9, verse 43, a small boy was possessed He was being physically harmed by that spirit, and the father sought the help of the disciples, but then to no avail. So he was brought to Jesus, and Luke records, and as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him, and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. 
And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. End quote. The scriptures record dozens of miracles performed by Jesus, turning water into wine, multiplying loaves and fishes, healing blindness and all sorts of infirmities. I mean, he even raised a man that was four days dead back to life. No mere human being could ever do such marvelous things. The only explanation is that Jesus must be God in the flesh. And evidence to the marvelous incarnation is also seen in his words. Not only his works, but his words. Luke 4, 22. Upon the commencement of his ministry in Israel, Jesus invoked the marvel of men with his words because he was speaking to his townspeople at the synagogue of Nazareth. And Jesus read the scriptures about the ministry of mighty works and words to come. And then he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then the scriptures tell us how they responded. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said is this not joseph's son how is he saying these things they wondered they marveled matthew 7 verse 28 after preaching the great sermon on the mount the response of the people is recorded quote and when jesus had ended these sayings the people were astonished astonished at his doctrine for he taught them not as one as as one having authority and not as the scribes they marveled no one's taught like this before interesting record of john 7 15 and so forth in that chapter jesus was teaching in the temple at the feast of tabernacles when his jewish antagonists quote they marveled saying how knoweth this man letters having never learned they marveled. Now, in context, at first, on the one hand, that marvel would be interpreted simply as being struck by the audacity. Who does he think he is? He doesn't have the authority. He's never learned anything. He didn't go to the right schools for this. <laughs> what in the world is he doing? And yet, it's just some verses later that officers that were sent to arrest him came back empty-handed. And when it was demanded of them why they were empty-handed, here was what they said. Never before man spake like this man. Stand out, marvelous words. The sensory response to miracles and healings, that would make us marvel, <laughs> no doubt. We'd rub our eyes, our jaws would hang open, and we'd be scratching our heads, how to figure this out. Well, the same is true when our minds process what the ears deliver to us because we, when we marvel at the compelling, even stunning truths taught in the marvelous words of Jesus. Who can compel the, the faithful? Who could bring the seeker? Who could give the earnest follower of God more than God himself in the flesh? Who could provoke the enemy? Who could defeat their words so thoroughly every time so much so that they were made foolish after one more debate at when they had with him it was said this no man was able to answer him a word neither durst any man ask him any more questions that's called putting it down and shutting them up that's what it was and i love the way the old english reads neither durst any man ask him any more questions <laughs> that is punching it down such things 
Marvelous works, marvelous works. It completely, completely marks the entire ministry of Lord Jesus. John again would say in John 1.14 of his gospel, that the word was made flesh and we beheld his glory. It wasn't that Jesus walked around for over three years emanating a blinding, glowing light. No, it meant that through his works and his words, marvelously evidenced that this person was none other than the Son of God sent from heaven by God the Father. He was then and remains Full deity. Jesus is God made flesh. And there's marvelous evidence to that. Now, one more point, and we'll wrap things up this morning. To demonstrate the marvel of the incarnation, let's take note of some vital ramifications to the incarnation for us today as believers. Item number three. Item number three. The incarnation is essential to man's greatest hopes. The incarnation is essential to man's greatest hopes. Now, uh, to speak of man's greatest hopes, you might wonder if I'm running for office, and I'm not, okay? Um, That is much more than just high-sounding yet vague nebulous talk. We've seen enough of that. So to help you see that hope really is a big deal for us, I want you to reason along with me for a few moments, okay? So just ask and come up with an answer to this question. Actually, I'm going to help you come up with some answers. But ask this question. What part of life as a person living in this troubled world would you correct if you had the power to do it? Okay? That's the question. What part of life as a person living in this troubled world would you correct if you could? Now, the way you answer that question is almost always an indicator of your greatest hope. Something that if you could change it, this is what I'd do. They would be the answer to the philosophical scenarios that we like to generate. If I were king for a day, here's what I'd do. And then you fill in the blank. It would be your greatest hope. If a genie granted me three wishes, here's what they would be. And then, based on your values, your experiences, your sensitivities, your wants, your fears, you would then alter reality so that your list would be the new reality. Okay, you're following with me so far? Okay, that's, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm getting to you. Let me suggest a few things that you would then change, and they would be your greatest hopes. Disease ended forever. Anybody on board with that? I'm a cancer survivor. I'm three and a half years in remission. Praise God. I praise the Lord for his mercy. I didn't have a promise of, of being cured, but God has been very good to me. I would, be, I would sign up for the Disease Ended Forever program. Let's just go one further. Death removed. Lost a loved one? I have. I know what that's like. Many of you have. You know what that's like? You would sign up for death removed forever. Poverty erased. No more suffering. No more want. I would sign up for that. Anyone here not? Right? I mean, these are things that crime and injustice made non-existent. I'm on that one. Yeah, I'm on that one. The universal eradication of onions. There's my man. You, 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 we're there. We're there. 
Okay, yes, brother, thank you, thank you. I, I didn't get quite the, quite the response I was looking for on that one, but it's my wish, I get to make it, and you can change it when you're king for a day, okay? Uh, <laughs> actually, I'm gonna make mine irrevocable, so then you can't do that. Okay, so I've, I've asked you to reason with me, stay with me a little bit more, okay? So whatever your list is, it represents your hopes. So then, to speak of man's greatest hopes, that's not nebulous. It's simply a, a speaking of those things that reflect the scope of our deepest desires. It, it, whatever would fill that void or want with a permanent solution, we would do it. Now, one more part of this, and then we'll get to our points here. Why do all those problems that we would fix exist in the first place? They exist because of the entrance of sin into the world back in Eden. When God created the world, those problems were non-existent, right? They weren't there. There was no disease, no death, no poverty, no injustice. I can even argue from the Hebrew there were no onions, but that's okay if you disagree with me about that. Uh, (laughs) That's not true. These things were not part of what God created. So only when man disobeyed God's command did these things come into the world. And God, in his justice, he pronounced this consequential curse about which he warned man. Well, from that moment on, the curse has been operational. Disease, death, misbehavior, trouble. And brothers and sisters, we long to be free, to be delivered, to be saved from them all. And furthermore, there's not one thing that man as a sinful race can do to remove this curse on our own. Because man, even at his best, most uh, selfless, uh, in his most selfless altruism, he cannot apply himself to undo these effects. He can't get rid of them. The only way for removing the curse is atonement before God, resolving the enmity and having peace with him. And that requires an innocent, unfallen sacrifice on the part of man to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And yet, every man is himself a fallen, imperfect guilty creature that is a hopeless situation who is sinless who is unfallen but god himself and yet god is eternal he cannot die it would be too marvelous to think that he could somehow become a man and pay the requirement himself A marvelous thought, yes indeed. But that's exactly what happened with the incarnation. This is why God became a man. And it's why the incarnation is essential to man's greatest hopes. Consider how the incarnation pervades the entire scope of the good news of Jesus Christ. The entire scope of the gospel. The Son of God was made flesh, Galatians 4.4, but in the fullness of time was, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law. The Son of God was made flesh. The Son of God lived in the flesh. Again, we've said it a couple times, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he was made flesh, he lived in the flesh, the Son of God died 
in the flesh. Philippians 2.8, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto the, even the death, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And praise God, Son of God rose again in the flesh. Acts 2, 31 and 32, Peter said, He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up. He was rose again in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father in the flesh. Same sermon, sermon at Pentecost. Peter said, therefore, being at the right hand of God, exalted. If Jesus was raised up in the flesh, if he's exalted at the right hand of the Father, he's there in the flesh. The Son of God is coming again in the flesh. Zechariah 14, this, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as, he, as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Can't have feet if you're not in the flesh. And the Son of God is going to reign forever in the flesh. Revelation 2, 22, 3 and 4, and there shall be no more curse, praise God. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall see him, and they shall see his face, and his name will be in their foreheads. Don't have a face unless you are in the flesh. Do you see that the incarnation pervades the entire scope of the gospel? Every one of man's hopes is resolved by God becoming a man, substituting himself in all the places of need, therefore accomplishing for man what man could not do for himself. First of all, there is the hope of salvation. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That verse could not be so without the incarnation. God requires the sacrifice of innocent blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death on the cross did exactly that. He died in the flesh on the cross. His life in the flesh testified to his sinlessness, and the virgin birth signified the union of deity and humanity. And so when physically he rose from the dead and then physically took his place at the right hand of the Father, Jesus demonstrates the power and authority to save to the uttermost all who come to faith by him. The incarnation is a big deal to you. It's a big deal to you if you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ because the hope of salvation that is offered to you this day in these words of what we've been speaking here, it is all happens because of the incarnation and it is made available. Jesus will save you to the uttermost if you will come to him by faith today. And when in return, what you receive for coming for salvation is the hope of everlasting life. John 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus and certain promise of victory of death, over death is given to us. Jesus told the sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The gift of eternal life is for you to have this day if you will believe in Jesus Christ. 
as your Savior, as the incarnate Son of God. Jesus promises victory over death by having those who put their faith in him to share in his resurrection. As he was raised in the flesh and forever remains that way, even so will those who put faith in him be raised in the flesh and forever remain that way. And what makes us marvel about these things? We are lost. We're hopeless without Jesus Christ fulfilling this plan as the anointed one, being fully God and fully man. His sacrifice of life on God's altar, it was sufficient to atone for sin. Hebrews 10.10, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's got a body. He offered it. It happened because of the incarnation. Our infirmity of sin was a, has a fearful, inevitable end in the final death and deserved punishment from God. And yet, marvelously, that same God provided the solution and the victory over our sin by taking that punishment in his body and conquering death through the resurrection of his body from the grave and that god in justice would execute punishment for sin it has been done so through his innocent sinless son so that guilty sinful humanity can be saved can be given the righteousness of jesus christ that is indeed something about which we should marvel it is evidence of his forever enduring mercy, evidence of his amazing grace. And none of it happens without the incarnation, without God being made flesh. The event itself is a marvel. This collective evidence of his works and words, verifying God dwelling in the flesh among men, that is a marvel. And that all the ramifications that we've discussed here, the ramifications of the incarnation show it to be an indispensable answer to our hopes. It's something also with which to marvel. And so amidst all the lights and the presence and the stories and the celebrations, and I welcome them all. I, I'm a traditionalist. I just happen to be that way. But let us truly sit back on our heels in this season Let's make sure we worship Jesus Christ, the person of God who became flesh. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here that their faith invested in your son Jesus Christ is all premised on this marvelous reality that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became a man known as Jesus of Nazareth, known as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here this day that has not yet cemented their eternality, their eternal home with you, let this message be the one that brings them to you. Let this understanding that Jesus is their answer to their sin issue, their sin problem, the things against which all their hopes could never be fulfilled in any other way except through him. May they put faith in him this day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And for those of us who have made that decision May we be your witnesses. May we be your voices to proclaim that message throughout this season. We ask this in the name of that Savior, Jesus Christ.
Amen.